Good morning, Mercy family. I love you so much. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So good to be together with you again today. We're in a doctrine series. Like Pastor Eugene said a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the Trinity. Last week we looked at the church. And this week we're going to look at the Bible. The doctrines are the essential teachings, you could say, the things we hold near and dear as essentials in the faith. And covering the Bible in 45 minutes, yeah, it's, it's not going to happen. I'm sure you realize that. But my hope is that with the short time that we have together, at least some interest will be sparked. Maybe some conversations will be had. I pray that the Spirit will be moving in your heart. Anybody know what the best-selling book of all time is? It's an easy one, actually. It's the Bible, right? Um, to get a count on, it's a little bit tough. Of course, the, the British and Foreign Bible Society estimates it may be around 7 billion Bibles that have been sold in history. That's just staggering, unbelievable amount of Bibles. That's a pretty cool fact of history, but what about today? And we can look at a bestseller list and find out what that book is. And according to the bestseller list, the best-selling book for 2022 was a book called It Ends With Us by Colleen Hoover. I don't know anything about it. I'm not recommending it. I probably won't read it. All I know is that it topped the list, and that's because it sold 2.73 million copies last year. That's, that's a lot of books. Now, sadly enough, you're not going to find the Bible on any current bestseller list, and here's why. If you Google how many copies of the Bible were sold last year, 2022, it was 20 million Bibles. That's staggering. That's a number that is just raw sales, by the way. It doesn't even take into account the 115,000 Bibles that were given away every day. That's 115,000 Bibles per day. If you add it all up, it comes to 100 million Bibles that were printed last year. That's unbelievable. The Bible isn't simply the best-selling book of all time. It's the best-selling book right now. How's that possible? I mean, they finished writing it 2,000 years ago. I mean, I wonder if Colleen Hoover's book will be at the top of the list 2,000 years from now. What do you think? I haven't read it, but I don't suppose so. I'd like to take a look at where the Bible itself might give us some help as to why it's been such a powerful resource for so many throughout history and for so many today. If your Bibles are open, we will be in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3, a couple of very familiar verses, 16 and 17. They'll be up behind me. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Father, God, your word is breathed out by you, inspired by you. What an incredible gift. 
God, would you help us to treasure it as so? Would you help us, even today, to unpack the words that you've given us for our benefit? I pray that your spirit would move our hearts. And now, God, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. There was a man not that long ago. He was looking for truth, but instead loved the lie. Wanted new information, a new knowledge high. Every evil agenda didn't care if he knew. Devoured all of their teaching as though it were true. Every mosque, every monastery, temple and shrine, that man bowed before statues and called them divine. He practiced their ways and all that they do to experience their wonders as though it were true. Land after land, time after time, he treasured each idol, recited each line, came back from his travels, shared all that he knew, claimed all faiths are equal as though it were true. His heart was black stone, though he thought it a gem. Those teachers who tricked him, he became one of them. Persecuted the way, as Paul had done too, stating they were the problem, as though it were true. He felt sure of their blindness, only he had the sight. He led others to darkness instead of the light. What wisdom could argue? His confidence grew. He fed them what's false, as if it were true. Though he'd remake all, <clears throat> thought he'd remake all truth into something more fair. Turned his back on God's grace, but Christ was still there. That sheep who had wandered, his good shepherd found, and scared off all the wolves that he'd followed around. Now, if you can believe that one simple word could undo all the nightmare of lies that man heard, then believe that the Bible can change a man's heart. That man's whole direction right from the start. Find one true protection, a Savior's love song, from prisons of heartache and mistake and wrong. His word is his promise to all things made new. Trust and treasure your Bible as though it were true. The Lord just sat me down last night, quieted me, and that came out. Many of you might already know, I'm ashamed to say, but that man, that man was me. Thank God for the Bible. I mean, what an amazing topic. The Bible changed my life. If there is a God who created this universe, is ruling and running this universe, the next logical question we might have would be, how can I know him? Where could I learn about who he is, what he's done, why that matters to me, if it should matter to me? 
What does he expect from me? What does he want me to know about him? I mean, I can know a lot of things about him from the things that he's created, can't I? The vastness of the ocean, the darkness of the cave, the detailed, precise inner workings of the cell of life, and all its forms and fashions. The sheer impossibility of the night sky. The balance and benevolence of ecosystems, of natural harmony, mountains that tower above, deserts that scorch beneath, forests that enclose us in, and grasslands that stretch on for miles, icy tundras and tropical islands, the complexity, diversity, humanity of people. Just see what he's made all of it revealing his unimaginable power and his brilliance in every detail of the sumatom- from the subatomic to the galaxy. It's all there. There's just one thing. All of the faiths, and I include atheism and agnosticism in that list, all of the faiths of this world have seen those things. They've seen what God's revealed in his creation. They've seen what he's revealed in a general sense to us all. And they've each made very different determinations on who God is and who he's not and what God's like, haven't they? Despite our American sentiments to let everyone believe what they want to, they can't all be right, folks. And to get it right, we need to completely depend on him to reveal something more than creation itself. We need something specific. We need him to reveal himself to us in a special way. We need him to say it. Thankfully, he's done just that. A couple of months ago, I shared with you what I believe are the two most pivotal questions that mankind has ever faced. You remember that the first of those questions was, did God actually say? Today, I'd like us to consider that very question in a special way. What did God actually say? How can we know it? Oh, my dear family and neighbors alike, I can assure you, remind you today that God has given his word to us. If we could only seek him, if we'd seek him to know him, to find out from him exactly what it is that he actually said, then you actually have everything you need to know exactly what he has told us. The question will ultimately be, will you believe it? We believe that it's true. Will you believe that it's his? Will you believe that it's ours? As in, it's good for us. It's for our good. We believe what he gave us, the Bible, actually is his word for us. That's what I'd like to explore together today so that we can consider in full honesty if this best-selling book that has radically changed the lives of so many, including my own, is really for us today. The first thing I believe that we can believe is in the authority of the Bible. The authority that it is true. I mean, why believe this book over all the rest? Why believe it at all? Well, if we take a look at the scripture that we have today, Paul says in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. Find out there right away that God himself is the one 
who's at work in giving us scripture. It originates with him. Some of your Bibles might say inspired by God. That's fine. The phrase there, breathed out by God, you might know is one word in the Greek, theopnostos. It literally means God breathed, all in one word. I love what one lexicon defined it as. It said, God breathed, produced by the very spirit of God, understood as the air that was physically expelled from the lungs of God. That's very specific, very intimate in one word that Paul's given us there. He's really trying to drive home to Timothy that the scripture that he has isn't by just any old author. Timothy can depend on the word because it's authorized from the very top. Scripture's authority comes from God. And that should be an assurance to us too, today. Take a look at what Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. We didn't just make this up. We didn't come up with it. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the divine author of Scripture. And what's been written in it? What's in it? The Bible's a myriad of different types of writing, from historical narrative to prophecy, from civil law code to census accounts, letters and love songs. And still, all of these different writings combine to tell one story. Pretty amazing. You remember that last year at this time, we had a sermon series called One Story, where we looked at all the different sections that are in the Bible, showing that they all point to the same exact story. I can't get into each of those, of course, but use that as a resource. It was, it was a powerful set of sermons. The point of that series was that the Bible is something that defies all human construction, it simply cannot be faked. It cannot be accidental. The Bible's very existence leaves us with only one rational explanation. It had to have been God that did it. I love what author and apologist Norm Geisler said. He said, you have a book, he means the Bible, written by 40-some authors over 1,500-plus years on dozens of different topics that have absolute unity. Most of the people didn't even know each other who wrote it. So it has amazing unity within great diversity, which is best accounted for by deity. I love that. Friends, we can be confident that the Bible really is authoritative the actual word of God, because even in its construction, even how it came to be unified into one perfectly coherent collection that could not have been accomplished by anyone other than God. And it showcases itself in truly special ways. The Bible isn't like any other religious text out there. It doesn't simply give us a collection of a bunch of wise sayings or maybe a bunch of rules to follow. It sets itself apart in ways that are incredibly profound. Let me give you an example. For one, it's rooted in history. It's a historical account. It's one of the few, maybe the only religious texts out there that actually welcomes 
historic scrutiny. Did you ever think about that? It routinely volunteers testable data in the form of, well, here is exactly where this happened. Here is exactly who this happened to. Here's exactly when this happened. Here's exactly how this happened. I mean, the word seems to be showing that it loves to be tested, that it loves to be trusted. I was at a sermon, uh, it wasn't a sermon series, it was a seminar, that's the word I'm looking for, seminar a few years ago with John MacArthur, and he made an outstanding observation about the Bible. He said, the Bible is unique unlike any other book that's out there because it makes extraordinary claims. It promises extraordinary things and then shows you that in fact, those extraordinary things did actually happen all in one text. There's nothing else like it out there. And so many of us seem to know about it, and yet so few seem to know what it's about. Have you ever noticed that? What's it all about? And many people, believers included, think that the Bible, well, it's about us. And I hate to rain on your parade if you're one of those people, but the truth is the Bible is not about us. It's not about you, and it's not about me. <laughs> In fact, our main contribution to the storyline, sadly, is sin. God's main contribution to the storyline is salvation. It involves paradise or living in perfect relationship with our maker. Paradise is living in the very presence of God. And it's a surprisingly simple story. Paradise is given. Paradise is lost. Paradise is redeemed. And paradise is restored, or renewed, or remade. The bulk of the story surrounds how God solves the problem that we created, sin, and how he redeems what it is that we lost. He uses scripture to show us that redemption, to show us that redeemer. I mean, in the law and the prophets, they were all saying, this will be him. And when he arrives, the angels and John the Baptist and others, they all proclaim, this is him. And when he leaves, the apostles and the church, they all assure us and verify to us, this was him. The Bible's purpose isn't to point us to something. As though all we needed as humans was just some wise sayings and things to do. No, sorry to all of the religious texts of the world, the other faiths of the world, but salvation is a little more involved than that. The purpose of the Bible isn't to point us to something. The purpose of the Bible is to point us to someone. It's all about Jesus. Jesus says so himself in John chapter 5 when he's having a discourse with the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they who bear witness about me. Jesus tells you right off that the scripture is about him. The Bible was given to us so that we can know 
God and know his will in order to know how to live in right relationship with him. And Jesus is God and is how you live in right relationship with God. The Bible is all about Jesus. What about the different parts of the Bible? Old Testament, New Testament. How do we know that Old Testament is authoritative? How do we know the Old Testament is true? The canon, the established set of books, it's in the Old Testament. Where'd it come from? That's actually an easy one. The Jews, that's their Bible. Our Old Testament is what they call the Tanakh. It's what they authenticated, never questioned, were the inspired books of God. They contained the law, which is the first five books of Moses, and the Israelites saw God with Moses. They know that was inspired. They contained the prophets, those people that God spoke through. Those things came to be. They know that they were spoken through by God. The inspiration isn't really called into question with the Jewish, Jewish text. It also contains the writings, by the way. And what you have in your Old Testament Bible is what the Jews then and now considered the inspired word of God. But what's probably most important to consider, what's most important to remember, is that Jesus and his apostles were all Jewish. And they quote these books as the word of God. They quote them. So with Jesus quoting the Old Testament as the inspired word, we really, really have all we need to know that God is the one who authorized it as his own, that these writings are in fact true. There's extra biblical things that suggest that too, like archaeology. And I, have, I had like a whole list of archaeological things I wanted to share with you. There's no way I'll be able to get through it, so I'm I'm not going to do it, but come up, ask me if you're interested in archaeology. I know some of you are. I love it, um, but I'm going to have to like skip past this whole list and kind of get to the real point, which is there are 25,000 archaeological discoveries that either directly support or corroborate the truth of the Bible. 25,000. Anybody want to take a guess as to how many archaeological discoveries, not historians' theories about things and we'll misdate and change the date of it. No. Things that we actually pull from the ground, how many archaeological discoveries contradict the Bible? Till now, zero. None. 25,000 to zero. It's not even a fair fight, guys. If you are a believer, the evidence is on your side. And yet, you'll know that if you believe in the Bible, you'll be called the denier. Be prepared for it. What about the New Testament? How can we know the New Testament's authoritative too? I mean, where do we get these books? This is always controversy, right? Before we get there, if you're a good student of the Bible, you're going to point out that when Paul talks about all Scripture being breathed out by God, in the context of the passage, Paul is specifically talking about the Old Testament scripture. Right? And you'd be right. That is, in the context, what he's talking about. Because Timothy didn't have anything else when he was growing up. But that's not to conclude that the apostles didn't consider New Testament writing scripture too. 
I'll give you some examples. I, w- I won't put them on the screen. First Timothy 5:18 is one where Paul quotes two different things as scripture. One from Deuteronomy 25, one from Luke 10:7. He quotes both and calls them both scripture. Peter does the same in 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 15 and 16. Peter's talking about false teachers who twist the scriptures to their own destruction. And in that list of scriptures, he includes Paul's writings. So we know that the apostles at least thought of New Testament writings as inspired. The New Testament has four gospels, has the book of Acts, has the collection of the epistles, which are the letters to the churches, and Revelation. So how did we get these books? Where did these 27 books show up? Well, despite sensationalists who love controversy and love to make news on Easter and Christmas season, believe it or not, it really boils down to one exceedingly simple rule. And that's that these books were either directly written by or under, written by someone under the guidance of, direct guidance of an apostle of Jesus. That's it. That's really all you have to look for. And there's orthodoxy and time, all that stuff. It really boils down to authorship. Was it an apostle or someone directly under apostle or not? And when I say apostle, I specifically mean one who Jesus himself commissioned and sent out on his behalf to speak for him. And there were very few of those. The New Testament writings were completed in an extremely small time frame of ancient history. We're talking maybe 30 to 50 years tops. That's, that's a nanosecond in ancient history. People could verify things. It's not like we're talking about thousands of years. They were not, were not chosen because of a council. You hear that all the time. They were instead more or less ratified by the Council of Carthage in 397. But the books were widely used. They were overwhelmingly understood to be the the apostles' writings. That's what everybody wanted. And the complete list of the New Testament, what we have in our New Testament, it predates the Council of Carthage by like 40 or 50 years anyway. Athanasius had a list of these books. And actually, we have the use, the quoting, the direct referencing to what may be every single New Testament book as early as around the year 100 or so by early church fathers like Ignatius of Antioch and Clement of Rome. The very, very early attestation that these specific books were well-known and seen as authoritative above all the others. They were overwhelmingly accepted. What made them so accepted was that they were sought after because they, they knew the apostles themselves wrote them. Why, why the apostle? Why is that such a big deal? Because the apostles were eyewitnesses. Take a look at what 2 Peter chapter 1 says. Peter tells us, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there. We saw this ourselves. John follows up with that in 1 John 1. He says, 
that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. We were there. We saw him, heard him, touched him. We were immediately part of this. We didn't hear from someone else. This is not a legend that developed. We were with Jesus. We learned from Jesus. Jesus himself sent us to tell you this. That's how important this is. The Bible stands alone as authority on the truth. Other religious texts and therefore other faiths have contradictions with themselves, contradictions with other faiths, contradictions, more importantly, with the Bible. Though many would hate for me to say it, the reality is that other faiths cannot lead you to the truth. All faiths can't lead you to the truth. They do not. They cannot. Let me give you an example. Either an eternal God, outside of his creation, purposefully spoke the universe into existence, or we sprang forth from the Hindu god Brahma's confusion about himself and his purpose when he found that he was sitting on a lotus flower growing out of the god Vishnu's navel. Those two views find no harmony. Either Jesus, the eternal God made flesh who dwelt among us, died on the cross and was resurrected. Or as the Quran says, he was magically replaced at the last minute when no one was looking and did not die on the cross. Take your pick. You can't choose both. Both can't be true. That's just creation and crucifixion. Just two topics, but those are no small matters. They're not simply for the Christian, it's for all, hum all of humanity. I mean, think about it. There's so much writing on the veracity of those two events. You don't have to be a follower of Christ to realize that knowing the truth for both of those events will alter the way that we live our lives. It will, in fact, change the very way we look at the world around us, at the people around us. Some religious texts are full of contradictions and, and they don't shy away from it either. They don't hide it. They seek to have us wrap the truth around our minds instead of having us wrap our minds around the truth. Let me give you an example. In Buddhism, one of the most ancient guys that we have for Buddhism is a guy named Nagarjuna. He was an Indian monk from South India, lived around 100, 150 or so. And I'm not going to try to even pronounce the text that this is from. It, I couldn't even believe I was able to type it all. Um, but take a look at the wisdom that Nagarjuna would like to share with you. Fire is not dependent on fuel. Fire is not independent of fuel. Fuel is not dependent on fire. Fuel is not independent of fire. Discuss. Is this where you want to begin your search for truth? I mean, I could, I could probably say, should I then depend on fire not being dependent on fuel? or depend on fire not being independent on fuel, right? Because sooner or later, I can't just sit around and contemplate emptiness, which is the goal of this. Every 
Buddhist sect, despite their, dis their disagreements on this, they all are chasing after emptiness. And I can't just simply contemplate emptiness as though reality doesn't exist because the things that I believe, they'll influence the choices that I make. And the choices that I make influence the actions that I take. And that will affect other people in this reality. It's inescapable. We don't just see this idea in explicit dogma from ancient times. We see it in implicit dogma today as well. Believe it. I mean, consider this. Every secular scientist will tell you that all of life came from non-life. Every secular scientist will tell you that the universe, everything, sprung out of nothing. I don't personally see that as any less nonsensical than this. Let me give you something to compare it to. How about these words? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Simple, clear, directional truth. I can't tell you what that event was like. Nobody can, but I can tell you that it's true. It's the explanation that best fits the evidence we have, which is the creation itself. The Bible can be trusted as the authority on truth on explaining both natural and supernatural phenomenon. God has authored and authorized this amazing gift to us to those who love the truth. There's no need to bend somehow the truth around our minds. We don't need to bend the truth to satisfy our minds. No, the authority of the Bible gives us every reason to continually conform our minds around the truth. It's authoritative. So are we doing that? Are we accepting and helping others accept the authority of the Bible as the truth? Are we continually conforming our minds, renewing our minds to its truth, trusting it, its authority to do just that? Brother, sister, we are the truth seekers. We're the truth defenders. We are the truth champions of this world. Can I ask you, when faced with the challenge of the truth, the truth of the Bible, to every authority that God's word is and what God has given us, are you up for the challenge? Are you prepared to give a defense to anyone who should question or challenge the truth by giving a reason for the hope that you have, yet with gentleness and respect? We don't need to know every answer to every last question or challenge to the truth, but are we steadfast to go find it if we don't know? Because the truth in this word and the truth of this world is on our side. I hope you realize it. That much I am confident of. Because God himself wrote it and has authority over it, we can believe all scripture is completely true. But what's really cool is that we can also believe that all scripture is really completely useful as well. He didn't just 
give us the unvarnished truth. He gave us something useful, something that has changed so many lives, that has everything that we need contained in its pages. We say that the Bible is entirely sufficient. Wayne Grudem has a very respected systematic theology. I like the way he defines it. He says, we can define sufficiency of Scripture as follows. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. Great definition. And that's in perfect accord with what Paul's saying in our passage. In the context of this passage, we would get the sense from Paul that he's not as interested in what the Scriptures are. He's even more interested in what the Scriptures do. Take a look at our passage in verse 16. He reminds Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. That means useful. It's beneficial. For what? For teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Now, we could do a sermon on each of those four things. We don't have time for that. I'm going to give you the one-minute version, okay? Teaching, didascalia, that is the word doctrine. Some of your Bibles might say doctrine there. The teaching is the standard that is set by Scripture. Reproof is when we recognize in ourselves and others, we've fallen short of that standard. The Bible points that out to us. Correction is improvement. It's bringing someone back to the standard. And training, training in righteousness, the word paideia, it's disciplining. It's training like the images of a parent with a child, helping them on into maturity. Paul's reminding Timothy in his passage and us of this immensely powerful tool that's at our disposal for all, all things pertaining to life and godliness. Our scripture isn't simply truthfully informative, it's also faithfully transformative. And do you remember when Jesus was driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted? Satan tried to tempt him while Jesus was in deep starvation. And the text says in Matthew 4, but he, that's Jesus, answered, it is written, goes immediately to the word of God, saying, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you notice the value that Jesus places on the word of God? Do you see that Jesus is showing us that the word of God eclipses even our top physical need in terms of importance? It's his highest need. Is it ours? The Word of God was his priority in that moment. Priority over one bite of food in 40 days of nothing. Do you and I share that same perspective? I mean, do we have the same priorities as Jesus, I wonder? Jesus used the Word of God, we see it here, and was victorious against temptation. It shows us that without the Word of God, we're guaranteed casualties in the spiritual battle that we're a part of. Oh, yes, you are engaged right now in warfare. Did you realize that? 
Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians chapter six. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Oh, hey, well, what do I do? How do I do that? Paul says, put on the armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What do I do to put on the armor of God? He gives us an indication in verse 17 of chapter 6. He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Do you see that Paul calls the word of God the sword of the Spirit? We'd probably find the idea of going off into battle without a weapon totally ridiculous. And yet, how many of us go off into spiritual battle every day and leave the very sword that God gave us behind? Does that happen to you? Does that happen in your life? Does your enemy trick you into thinking that there's just no time for meditating on Scripture? Has he tricked you and others in your family into relinquishing your sword? Has he convinced you that the Bible is just too outdated, just too boring, just too confusing, just too inconsequential to your life? Guys, the Bible is our weapon against the father of lies. Don't give it up, not for him, not for anyone. What is God's word then? enough for you? Do you believe that this word is totally sufficient to teach, point out, correct, and heal the deepest of problems that we face in this life? Do you believe that with Scripture, you have all that you need? That all that God himself determines that you'll need? Or would you love it if you could use a little of what God says and maybe a little bit of advice, maybe a little bit of help, a little bit of correction from other sources too. Wow, despite all the difficulties so many areas of life may have, is the Bible enough to speak into my marriage? Is the Bible enough to speak into my child raising? Is the Bible enough to speak into my work life? Is the Bible enough to speak to the health of my very soul. Or maybe a little bit of secular advice from friends, books, shows, social media, well, that might be a good balance too. Oh, guys, are you discerning those sources through the lens of Scripture? I wonder, friends, if we fully comprehend the danger of succumbing to the belief that the Bible just isn't enough. In verse 17 of our passage, the text says that the man of God may be complete. That means lacking nothing. Complete, equipped, fully armed, ready for every good work. There's nothing there that isn't supposed to be there. And there's nothing missing that somehow should be there. Hear what Paul says about God's word being enough for us, friends, to equip us. It's all there. Other readings, other religious texts, they have a lot of things, but they don't have it all. Believe me. They might have 
the acknowledgement of God or gods or a spiritual realm, either inside or outside of ourselves. It might even acknowledge that there's sin or at least that there's something wrong with this world, with our lives, with our relationships, with our character. But there's one thing that the Bible has that is strikingly absent. One thing that you'll find in the Bible that you won't be able to find in any other religious or philosophical text up until now and arguably forever. There is no good news. There's no good news. The Bible is all about the gospel. And to my believing and unbelieving friends alike, hear me say it, there is no hope to be found anywhere else. The Bible has it all, so thank God we have the Bible. To bring it to a close, guys, we've seen that we can believe the Bible's authoritative. And we've seen that we can believe that it's sufficient for all we need as well. Now, will we trust it? Because you have the very word of God. Did you realize that? Have you ever stopped to think about that? You have his word. It's not just a set of writings on a page. It's a promise. You have his word. When I give you my word, it's not just language. I'm giving you an assurance. That's what you have. The author of Hebrews tells us that we all have to swear by something higher than ourselves, and yet God can't swear by anything higher than himself. There is no such thing with his own name on the line. The highest of the high, he has given you his word. Second to the last chapter in the Bible. Revelation 21, you've got to love it. It says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Oh, imagine it, dear friends. Can you even believe it? Imagine what it took to accomplish what this word says will be. Imagine this resource that he gave us to read that God himself made sure was written down for our benefit and that he himself says is trustworthy and true. Imagine how much it means that we can know with full confidence that it's so, that we are already completely equipped. Just imagine, dear family, what it could mean to this world if you and I, his church actually lived as though this word were trustworthy and lived as though this were true. Father, God, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful for the transformation that your scripture brings. God, I'm thankful for your spirit's authorship over it, your spirit's work in our hearts. God, would you be at work through your word in our hearts today? that you would be so glorified for your church in this world. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.